Hello, everyone, and welcome to an afternoon episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics, here, as always, with the great man, who's been quite active lately at the Voice Forum, I hear. Well, I was here, James. We had attended a very interesting forum at, uh, in the New Farm United Church at the suburb of Brisbane, and we actually packed the, it's not a big church, but we packed the church out for it and had a quite a lively debate and uh, taught a few things about uh, the public attitude towards uh, towards uh, the, the whole issue of the voice. But, uh, yeah, that kept me active for a while and a few other things. And uh, what have you been up to? Uh, full-time work. Uh, I've gone from a um, uni student mooching off the public purse to now someone uh, paying taxes and doing the uh, weekly commute. So, And you're enjoying that. It's a surprise. Oh, yes. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. Great stuff. Well, right, uh, let's get into it this week. I thought we might uh, start and have a talk about uh, uh, the Reserve Bank and the Governor of the Reserve Bank, you know, Philip Lowe, and then have a chat about the New South Wales election, which is uh, becoming quite a strange election in all sorts of ways. And I'd like to have a few words to say about the coronation in England, and then by that time we might be ready to get into good and bad. Guys, can I start off with Philip Lowe? Uh, you know, when, when I was growing up as a boy, uh, there was no such thing as the Reserve Bank of Australia. The Commonwealth Bank had certain roles with the government and gave the government uh, advice, but we didn't have a, a Reserve Bank that uh, uh, decided on uh, interest rates. And back in those days, Australia's currency was fixed by government decision. We didn't have a floating currency when I was growing up. That came. Uh, you know, Bob Hawke basically uh, well, another brought that in. And, and so we now got a, a Reserve Bank that's quite powerful. And you wonder now whether who controls the economy, the Reserve Bank or the Federal Treasury. Uh, and they, there seems to be some conflict there. And I've got to say that I would trust uh, Jim Chalmers in the Federal Treasury long before I trust, you know, Philip Lowe. But we have a situation where interest rate being one of the things where uh, uh, there's a great controversy. And I just want to open the debate by saying that all through my life, whenever there's been a crisis of any description, it's been the little guys of the country that's paid. They put up the taxes or put on special levies or whatever. And the little guys all paid the price, never the wealthy guys. So we've got a situation where the homeowners of Australia, and they're not a, an enormous section of the population, but they're significant thing, homeowners of Australia, and getting a rate rise every time because no other mechanism seems to be being used to handle inflation. And some people are saying, well, that, that's Jim Chalmers' job uh, and, and the Reserve Bank can only just put up interest rates. But it means that the little guys are paying the pain for the inflation that Australia's got, not the people who've got you know, money in the bank. Now, What's your view? You didn't grow up in these strange days, I did, James. You've only known a Reserve Bank and uh, whatever. How do you see it? Uh, I, I couldn't put it any better myself. I mean, we've talked on this show before about how the root causes of the inflation that we are seeing are global factors and corporate greed. Interest rate changes don't change those global factors and they certainly don't stop corporate greed. Um as long as supply chains around the world are disrupted because of COVID and because of the war in Ukraine, the COVID stuff is hopefully in terms of, you know, supply chains slowly making its way better, but the war in Ukraine is showing no signs of stopping. 
Um, those are things that we're going to have to find other ways to deal with because those are factors where or that they are outside of the Reserve Bank's control and the Federal Treasury's control. Corporate greed, on the other hand, um, is something that, though it's not within the control of the Reserve Bank or the Federal Treasury, two observations can be made. The first is that changes to interest rates will do nothing to stop corporate greed. If the corporations, as we've discussed in this show, are indeed using the guise of these global factors to jack up their profit margins, changing the interest rate doesn't do that. The whole idea behind changing the interest rate is that people will have to spend more of their weekly income paying off their house or paying their rents. This means that they'll have less money to spend on TVs or fridges or sweets or whatever is causing the inflation. Um, the flaw in that plan is when the prices of bread, the prices of milk, the prices of fuel are all going up and up and up, the price of gas up and up and up, not because people are spending too much on fuel and supercharging the market, but because the fuel companies are looking at the crises around the world and saying, don't mind if we do, and they are taking advantage of the consumer. And say someone is taking home $2,000 a fortnight, and say they have to spend X amount of money on their mortgage, X amount of money on fuel, X amount of money on food. When their mortgage goes up, if there's inflation being caused by the greedy fuel companies, they can't spend less on that fuel. They might need that fuel to get to and from the supermarket, to and from work, to and from dropping their kids off at school, and so on and so forth. So the inflation we've got in the economy right now isn't being caused by this overheated, overcharged, luxurious economy of reckless spending. It's it's. It's companies who sell people essentials like fuel taking advantage of, the, of, of world events and using it as an excuse to jack up prices. The Reserve Bank can do nothing to stop that. Nothing. And so all they're doing, as you've said, is shifting the burden onto, onto the little guy. And, and, and that's been the way it is through history. Now, one hopes that the review of the Reserve Bank that uh, Kim Chalmers is doing at the moment through the Treasury might alter a few things, but we need to have clearer lines of who's between the Reserve Bank and the Treasury as to who's running Australia. And, and, and I would prefer more power in the Treasury and less in the Reserve Bank. Uh, but there's got to be wiser heads than me on the thing. But right now, uh, I think that the Reserve Bank is not doing uh, the right thing. for. I don't believe their interest rates are going to fix the problem that we've got. There's got to be a, a better solution and I hope that we can look for that better solution and, and maybe it takes an intervention by Kim Chalmers and I'd cheer into the echo if he did. And I think a lot of voters would like, if, if tomorrow Jim Chalmers put his foot down and said, these greedy fuel companies aren't, um, aren't going to get away with this anymore, we're going to slap fines on these massive fuel companies who are jacking up prices. We're going to tax these massive fuel companies who are jacking up prices. We're going to put a price cap on the fuel so they can't uh, jack up the prices. Something that people would love that. Uh, it's, it's politically smart, but it's also, to my mind, the only way we can stop these companies from doing it. For too long, um, we have, not just in Australia, 
and not just under the Liberal government, but under both parties, um, sort of given the private sector, I think a bit too much leash, you know? Our prices are just going up and the poor people have to suffer and that's just how economics works. That's just how the market works. But it doesn't have to work like that. Um, nope. it, we, we can we can aspire for better than that, I think. And also, uh, there's no there's always been the attitude in Australia that the, the, the job of a board of directors of a big corporation is to get their shareholders a good dividend and seeing my super funds got shares everywhere, I'm all in favour of good dividends. But that's what they feel their responsibility is. I believe we've got to have some sort of a culture maybe legitimate where a, a, a corporation has got to show not only that it represents its shareholders, it represents its staff, it represents its uh, customers, it represents the community, it then it represents the nation, which gives us its right to, uh, to do things. And there has to be a greater balance of how the corporate wealth uh, is better distributed, not just to shareholders, but to all the people who allow... Uh, the company to trade in the first place. Now, I hope we can somehow get a change in that philosophy, maybe legislate for it. I completely agree. And I mean, let's let's look at something like climate change. Uh, a corporation owes duties only to its shareholders, like you say, to maximise profit and maximise the dividend. But if the corporation is doing something that's contributing to climate catastrophe, uh, that is contributing to bring about rises in temperature, bring about natural disasters, um, all these things we see from a climate catastrophe that, sure, might earn this year's crop of shareholders a little bit more money, but might saddle a crop of shareholders, you know, 25, 50 years from now with massive lawsuits and legal burdens because of the river they polluted, um, the company that the company polluted 50 years ago. Can you really say that that's in the best interests of the company to go on these, you know, polluting endeavours? There are a lot of questions in terms of corporate social responsibility that are being answered right now in yeah. business and legal academia are being debated. But to get back to our yeah to to get back to our root point, um, I I do think Jim Chalmers needs to. Th th this is his time where he can show that the Labor government's on the side of the people. This is where he can say, you know, Peter Dutton wants to let these companies charge you through the nose. Um, Peter Dutton and the Liberals always take a soft touch approach to companies when they try to diddle the consumer, but we in the Labor Party are willing to step up and step in and go into bat for, you know, young Aussie mums and small families and single mums and single dads and all the people who the current crop of interest rate rises is screwing over. Um, this is, I think, Jim Chalmers' big chance to, again, step in over the Reserve Bank and over the, the greedy super corporates and say, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to go into bat for the consumer. Well, let's wish him well in that. Can we move on a bit now to the New South Wales elections, which are uh, uh, baffling to me, one of the strangest elections of my lifetime, in fact. Uh, but they said to be two things wrong. They're a disaster-prone government. Every week some new disaster comes up. Somebody's got to resign. The Premier's got to apologise. And, and, and uh, it, it seems that not just that these are accidental things happening, I've got a feeling that there are people in the party, a faction, trying to move against Perrottet and they're, they're digging up all sorts of things to embarrass Perrottet so they could roll in before the election. 
and, and, and in addition to that, they seem to, again, be having trouble with their pre-selections and whatever. So it seems to me that the biggest enemy Perrottet's got at the moment is not the Labor Party, but his own mob. Now, am I getting too sinister in my old age, Jack? No, I, I think you're entirely right. The New South Wales Liberals are not a well-run mob. Um, there's a couple of factions that are very prominent in the New South Wales Liberals, and we learnt about those factions during the federal election because you've got people in the hard right, like Dom Perrottet, and though Dom Perrottet is a conservative Catholic and his faith is very important to him and informs his politics, he's a different type of religious right to the other. Real capital R religious right which is really the Hillsong religious right. And yeah. that's Scott Morrison and Alex Hawke's faction, who also have guys like David Elliott on the ground um, in New South Wales at state level. And it, true to form, just like in the federal election, it's that right-wing Hillsong faction specifically that seems to be causing the trouble. Because much like in the, um, the, New, South Wales, uh, the, the New South Wales liberal branches pre-selection to the federal election, it's these Alex Hawke acolytes who seem to be going, uh, locking horns with Perrottet in pre-selection wars all across the state. And look, pre I, you, I don't blame the average voter for not paying attention to pre-selection stuff. It's not exactly uh, must-see 6pm viewing, um, but it's just interesting to see how dysfunctional um, the Perrottet faction and all the factions really, how, how much they seem to lock horns with this power-hungry Hillsong faction in New South Wales Parliament. I mean, Hillsong is based in the Hills District in New South Wales, around Castle Hill, Rouse Hill, that sort of area. So I don't think, though in states like Queensland, the religious right is still quite huge. I don't think specifically that Hillsong right is so prominent in the other states. So it's a really um, huge, huge faction down here. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's unique to New South Wales conservative politics. Well, put, put it this way, but there's other strange things. For instance, the ALP should be winning this election by the length of the straight. You know, if you want to drag go back to, to, to uh, uh, Gladys and uh, the, the relationship with a guy who got, got her into enormous political trouble and stemming from, uh, from all of those things, uh, you would think the Labor Party would be winning this election by the length of the straight now. The polls that I've seen, and, and and I don't think polls are terribly accurate, but the polls that I've seen show that the Labor Party is not gaining on Perrottet or getting it by anywhere near the way in which they should. And it seems to me that there's some sort of malaise in the party. I don't see them on fire to win. I mean, one of the reasons why Albo won was he, he had a whole team behind him, even if Albo was a peaceful sort of a bloke, not pushing the envelope all that. Aggressively, he had a plan, but uh, you know he had a team that was burning to win. I don't sense this burning to win thing in the ALP. And in my view, if they don't win this election considerably, well, then they should be hauled before the stewards and swabbed. You know, run, running a dead race. What the hell's wrong with the Labor Party in New South Wales? Yeah, so the, the the polling I'm seeing is roughly averaging out to saying on two-party preferred Labor's ahead 55-45. Now, that seems like quite a lot, but all it takes is three points of movement and suddenly that's 52-48, um, which is like a within the standard margin of error of it going the other way. 
So it's hardly an insurmountable lead in the polling, especially given we're still um, five weeks out or so from the election itself. I don't think I'd say there's necessarily a malaise in New South Wales Labor. There's there's a general malaise in New South Wales politics across the board where because of the corruption in the Labor Party in New South Wales from about 2007 to 2011-ish, but right before they got kicked out of government and the corruption in the Liberal Party now, um, it's permanently in the minds of a lot of New South Wales voters that, oh, at state level, they're both just as corrupt as each other. Um, who cares? And now when Gladys was the Premier, that was great for her because people seemed to like her. So people would say, oh, well, they're both as corrupt as each other, but I like Gladys, so I guess I'll vote for her. Um, it's a bit different this time around because people don't like Dom Perrottet as much as they like Gladys. Um let me tell you another way. Here in Queensland, uh, where we all get the national news, I guarantee if you go down the street and say to people who is the alternative premier in New South Wales, if one percent of the voters can tell you, you know that that, that might even be an exaggeration. And I've got to think about it. I mean, it, it, usually when there's going to be a change of government in other states, there's publicity everywhere saying there's going to be a change of government and you hear what the new leader's like and might be like. There, there's hardly any here in Queensland. We wouldn't even know there's an election on. There's no fire being spilled everywhere. And somehow or other, they, 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 the ALP's got to get a bit of fire into it somewhere, haven't they? I'd, I'd like to think so. Here, in at state level, we're not seeing a huge amount of ads on TV. Uh, two of the biggest... Look, we, we have our usual state issues, um, hospitals, schools, roads, trains, etc. Uh, the two big, big issues in uh, New South Wales politics at the moment for those following are toll roads and pokies. Um, now, I've said before on this show, the one really good thing Dom Perrottet has done is he's pledged to um, make it so the pokies will be cashless. Um, if he were to win. And that would be a huge, huge step towards stopping money laundering and hopefully one step towards stopping gambling addiction um, because New South Wales is, it's pokey central. Um, now, the toll road thing runs the other way where Chris Minns for the Labor Party is saying your full commute uh, from Western Sydney into the city on New South Wales' toll roads costs you $183 a week. We, the Labor Party, will cap it at $60 a week. Now, that's obviously very good politics. People like to save money and saying, I'll save you $120 a week if you drive to work, is good politics. People like that. On the other hand, strictly speaking, it's actually kind of bad long-term policy because we want to get people off the roads. We want to be heavily investing in infrastructure like trains and buses and so on if you've driven from western sydney from penrith where i live into the city for your morning commute let me tell you it's um pardon my french but like it's it's shit house it's stressful there are cars everywhere it's so sickeningly congested oh, you're right. you've got to get cars um, right yeah and so <laughs> the yeah the, the policy like the toll roads policy it's it's a great short-term quick fix it's something voters like but it's Cheaper tolls isn't something that's going to decide an election. Um, and also, it's not 
great visionary long-term politics. In saying that, in saying that, some things that I do find visionary long-term politics, um, trains, stuff like trains. I've complained many a time on this show about the New South Wales Liberal Party and how they've treated rail workers. You won't get that under a Labor government. But again, as we like to say, that's not something voters feel in their pockets. And though it's actually a really important issue, you know, the continued long-term survival of Sydney's public transport network, it's not something that's as fun, as interesting for news outlets to put on their headlines and something that voters don't feel in their wallets. So I think the toll roads and the gambling are the two big issues that we will see. Oh, and Miss, what's within? What's the date of the election? Um, twenty third, I believe. Twenty third of March. If, right. if that, it, it's it's the it's either the twenty third, twenty fifth, twenty seventh. It's the Saturday of that week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's let's keep an eye on that as we go now. So we don't run out of time. We can't talk about a good and bad boy. Just one quick thing. I've I've been on Twitter this week. To, saying that I like King Charles as a bloke, he's not a bad fellow, but the nonsense of a coronation spending billions of pounds when the British economy in strife, the health system's in strife, people are going on strike over their their, their, their wages, uh, they, they, they've got trade deficits, whatever you want, they're spending billions on a coronation when the bloke's already the king and legally he's the king. And this is just a show put on. Uh, I just think Charles ought to back off and... Uh, and not just have a quiet ceremony in Westminster Abbey or St Paul's Cathedral where they put a crown on him. And he goes down with him and has a couple of scotches. That that, that would be a, a better deal. And I'm just hoping the Parliament will give up this nonsense of a coronation. It's it's so over the top, isn't it? I mean, like if you're if you're a person in Britain who's homeless or struggling to put food on the table, or struggling with your kid's school or your kid's dental or something like that. And, you know, or you'd hear from the government, oh, well, we, we can't afford to subsidise more dental or more schooling or more welfare, but we can afford to subsidise a coronation um, for the richest family in the country. It well, would feel like a slap in the face. In the globe, in fact, one of the richest families in the globe. So, look, I'm going to keep, a, not that it's going to alter, but I think uh, it's a thing that we can stir up a fair bit of not. It's helping the Republican movement no end here that, you know, why stick with a royal family that wants to spend billions on on nonsense? Now let's get to good and to uh, let's get to good and to bad guys. Now, now my good person of the week is Nicola Sturgeon, the uh, now resigned premier of um, of Scotland. Uh, I, I myself have always been a great fan of Scottish independence. They should kick the palms out and tell them to go to hell. Because I, my view, they've never done a damn thing for Scotland. Uh, except by a few votes, uh, you know, here and there. And it's sad that she's now given up the battle. She was the big hope. And I think it's another one of these issues where she's been hounded to hell over that issue and some transgender issues that she was trying to sort out. Uh, and uh, and she, like Jacinda Ardern and Julia Gillard before a difference, they've been hounded. Gillard, Ardern and Sturgeon have been hounded to hell and I think a lot of it's because they're female, but handed to hell because all three tried to be reformers. And people say, I'm all in favour of reform as long as you don't touch anything that I'm interested in. And so I'm sad to see it go. I reckon she's the best leader Scotland's had uh, since Robert the Bruce fell the hell out of the ponds in one of those battles. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the transgender bill you raised, I think she wanted to really take trans rights in Scotland into the 21st century. Um, but one thing to note about the UK and especially the England part of the UK is that there's this huge class of like white upper class British media who do nothing all day but sit at their computers and write about how evil gay and trans people are. Um, it's a it's a uniquely British phenomenon in that, like, you know, we've seen all the transphobia and that and the homophobia in America and that's all religious. Um, but in the UK, it's not coming from the religious angle. It's just coming from this weird obsessive angle. And they tried to pass that bill in Scotland. And like you say, she's tried to push the Scottish independence and tried to do a lot of things that are different to what the people in England who really run the United Kingdom want to do. And I think you're right that every time she's tried to do something that Scotland wants but England doesn't want, she's gotten punished for it and punished especially and harassed especially because she's a strong woman trying to do it. I think you might be right. And I hope that she can have some other role in the world, a good person. Who's your good person of the week? My good guy of the week is a Sethifican cricketer Temba Bavuma. Um, it is not so long ago, indeed, Everald, in your lifetime, where um, black South Africans were not even classed as people. Um, now, Temba Bavuma, a black South African, has just been named captain of the test team. And obviously, a black man being named captain of the South African test team doesn't solve poverty and inequality in South Africa. But it is a really nice moment for him, um, a really nice moment um, for the country um and you know a really nice a, a nice little moment for progress to see that in arguably you know one of the most racist countries in history um in, in recent history i should say that um hey a black man is now the captain well, I, 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 well, I, must, I must look that up and cheer him on because uh, i used to visit south africa a lot on business in earlier days and i can jump into the several of the cricket of the Wanderers ground in, in Johannesburg and Newlands in Cape Town. And, and if a black man appeared anywhere, he, he couldn't come out the same gate as the white guys and he, he couldn't go to the same toilet as the white guys. And, and, and the thought that he would, might be captain would have started a revolt of enormous proportions in South Africa, uh, you know, back at the time. So I'm pleased to, to, uh, you know, to see that. Now, look, my... Uh, at my uh, well, actually, I've got two, uh, uh, two, 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 or the bad guy. Now, the bad guy in Turkey, I see that you've got to know how to pronounce it now. Turkey or Turkey, or uh, different news services still haven't got around to deciding what the right name for Turkey is. But they arrested a whole pile of property developers in Turkey for building jerry built buildings that crashed like matchsticks in this earthquake. And there pictures on the six o'clock news of. Architects being and engineers being hauled out of their offices, probably to cut off to jail. Now, that you can probably only do that in a country that's run by a bloke with the authority of Vertigan, but obviously he decided that somebody was going to take the heat for this and not him. And, and I think they probably did build Jerry built uh, buildings. But I'm also wondering is it possible for anybody ever to build a building that can stand earthquakes that, like that? I certainly think we can make. Building is more earthquake proof, and here in Australia, we can make them more waterproof and we can make them more fireproof. But it, it showed that the whole way in which we build houses, the whole way, 
is now up for a bit of a change, isn't it? And so these bad guys are now going to jail. Well, you might say, well, Erdogan's the bad guy, but one way or another, that's where it is. Well, I mean, I, I think in Australia, the best way to floodproof and fireproof our buildings would be to um, push for climate action uh, mm -hmm. rather than continue to um, pollute the planet and raise temperatures further. But your point's right. I mean, there, there comes a point where, like, it's it's great to um, satiate that bloodlust of the evil developers, but I'm no uh, going to pull a big word out here, seismologist or seismologist. I don't know which one it is. I'm no earthquake scientist. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you might be right that um, to build, if this is an earthquake that's killed, what, like 20, almost, it's over 30,000 people, I think. Um, I don't know what it would take to proof your buildings for such a massive earthquake, but it's um, certainly probably beyond your average mum and pop property developer. Oh, true, and I, and I, but I think all around, we can do things. When yes. was people yeah. want to build a house out in the bush. Rules got to be you can't have a tree. You can have gardens around your house, but you can't have any trees for 50 metres because if you're surrounded by forest, you're a goner. At least you've got to have a decent, you know, you know, fire break and you've got to have some water sprinklers that work no matter what, uh, you know, it's happening. Or, or, for instance, in my home here in Brisbane in the floods uh, in February, we only got minor damage, but now it's getting it fixed. If certain things had been done when the house was built, I didn't build it, I bought it from the previous owner. If certain things had been done when the house was built, the water would not have got where it did get, but by, with certain floodproof procedures that might have been put into it. So I think we can get our act together a bit better, can't we? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's certainly, there's certainly a level of stuff we can do to disaster-proof our buildings a bit better. And these things need to go into standard building codes and, not to not to do like a racism, but I don't know if the standard building codes in Turkey and Syria are as strong as they may be in some other countries. Um, so exactly true. Well, now who are your who are your bad guy? Well, my bad guy of the week was originally going to be um frequent um checker in at bad guy hotel Peter Dutton, but I've um I've taken a different angle this week. My bad guy of the week is the Australian mainstream media. So Peter Dutton this week, um, he tearfully apologised for walking out on the apology to Indigenous Australians. He's finally realised that was a terribly racist and vile thing to do, to walk out on the apology to Indigenous Australians 15 years ago. Then he met with the Voice Commission and immediately came out and said, oh, this referendum's going to fail. Now, Peter Dutton was going to be my bad guy for this, but then I reflected on it. And I remembered what I talked about last week, about how it's clear Peter Dutton's trying to have it each way with the voice. He's trying to appeal to the conservatives who say that they don't know enough about the voice and that the voice is bad, while also trying to seem to the um, educated media class like he's interested and he wants to work towards the voice. Now, it's it's very clear what he's doing. He's, he's trying to undermine the voice at every turn to satiate his base. But it's, it's at the point where I think it's now the fault of the media class for, for not calling him out on this, um, for letting him pretend to present what he's doing as um, just asking questions rather than a deliberate attempt to undermine the voice. So every time Peter Dutton gets on the blower and says, there's not enough detail about the voice, every outlet who writes an article on this should say, 
Peter Dutton, the opposition leader, says there's not enough detail out there about the voice. When Peter Dutton was in cabinet, Ken Wyatt, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, tabled hundreds and hundreds of pages of detail about the voice to Peter Dutton, which he now refuses to tell the voters about. You know, it's it's at the point where I think he, Dutton, who I don't think is necessarily a savvy operator, is absolutely running riot over the media and taking advantage of how credulous they are. And sorry for how long this rant has gone on, but it just makes me so mad that yeah, they keep... Know, let, let's come at it another way, mate. I, I chaired a forum on, on The Voice last uh, Friday, and I've, I'm doing one a week somewhere now. Yeah. And in the crowd yesterday, there are a lot of people I knew because uh, I've been in the United Church for a long and in a big crowd turned up. Some very sensible people in the meeting got up and said, I'm voting no because it has been inadequately explained to me how this thing will work. What sort of a, is it going to cost billions of dollars? Are they going to have their own parliament out? Uh, will the parliament ever be able to give them more power? And these are sensible and decent people, some of whom I know voted for our vote. Some of the blokes in the crowd got up and said, I have not got enough detail. Now, Dutton has worked that out and is capitalising on it. Uh, yes. The idea of no it was not a Dutton thing. There are people out there who simply go to not have information. And while I'd agree with you that Peter Dutton saw the Ken White report and there's the Marcia Langton report and there's the Uluru Statement itself, well, let me tell you, if 1% of the voters of Australia read those reports, mate, I'll buy you whiskey for the rest of my life because they're not going to read it. And so Dutton's just latched onto something that is there and without pandering to Albo, without pandering to Dutton, Albo's got to give a, a bit more into it. And bearing in mind that people don't trust politicians, mm. he can say, look, after the referendum, this is what I'm going to do. Most voters will say, well, maybe yeah. do it before the referendum and have an act that only comes into being if the referendum passed. I think Albo's got to address this, not because Dutton's raising it, because good, sensible people who voted for him last time are raising it. Well, that, that's what I mean, though. I, I don't deny nor doubt that there are people out there and it, sh it shouldn't be incumbent on the voters to read Ken Wyatt's 300-page report or the 300-page Marsha Langton report. What's really making me quite mad is that instead of... Um, so D Dutton sees that there are people out there with genuine and sensible concerns. And in, as someone who has read those reports, if Dutton was acting in good faith, he'd be saying, well, okay... My Liberal voters are saying there's not enough detail. Albo, let's work together to put out a pamphlet to give them the detail. Instead, he's getting up and banging this no detail drum, even though he himself knows what the details are, rather than delivering those details to his voters. And the media is letting him do it. And that is and what's also, annoying. Also, Albo is letting him do it because... He's a politician, and I don't approve of what he's doing, but he sees this as an avenue for beating Albo, and he believes Albo is not handling it well, and so he's going to hammer it like hell. Now, now I think a bit of common sense all around has to come into it, and, uh, and I think that this is an issue upon which the whole thing could fail unless we have it. And you and I will keep an eye on this, but I, I, I'm campaigning for yes, and I'll campaign for yes, even if I've got no detail but I really think it's wrong not to put out the detail. But let's see how it goes. Well, James, our half hour's up. We better shut up. But it's been a good, uh, it's been a good discussion as usual. And next week, uh, 
Uh, there'll be a few uh, uh, other issues that are going to arise because I think uh, the, the backlash off the central bank thing is still going to be flowing next week. There's a number of issues that are going to arise in, uh, you know, in various ways. And we can talk about the meeting I went to uh, where, uh, where uh, Anastasia uh, is going to pass a get a bill in for, for Queensland to have a treaty with Queensland Indigenous people. Awesome. Now that will affect, does it look as if she's supporting the treaty people uh, who aren't <laughs> going to vote yes in this thing? So uh, we ought to have a good look at that next week. Yep, sounds like a plan. Thanks for listening, everyone, as usual, and ciao for now. Yeah, good on you, James. See you.